Well, it's a great joy to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm not Father Brian. I'm Father Brady Wagner. I'm from the seminary. Uh, and it's a great joy to be able to help out this weekend because I know that Father Brian's out of town. There's a great moment in the Lord of the Rings movies where uh, Pippin, this little hobbit, is there uh, in the white city of Gondor, and he's overlooking Mordor. And this is kind of like the final conflict is about to happen between the evil Sauron and uh, the powers of Mordor and uh, the age of men and all of mankind, and it's coming to, the, coming to a head in this moment. And it's this epic battle between good and evil. And Pippin is there, this young guy, and he's already placed himself in the service of the steward of Gondor, and Gandalf is right next to him. And he says this striking line. He says, I don't want to be in a battle, but being on the edge of one I can't escape is even worse. I don't want to be in a battle, but being on the edge of one I can't escape is even worse. Now we see in the book of Exodus, God's desire to train his holy people for war. And yet many of them, most of them, have resigned themselves to this cruel slavery, saying, I cannot fight even though I suffer so deeply. Their cry goes out to God, and then he intervenes by calling Moses back to Egypt and does these powerful marvels, these great deeds, the ten plagues, in order to loosen the grip of Pharaoh and let his people go. So Pharaoh tells them to go, to leave, to get out. After, being, after having his hand forced by the Lord. This beautiful revelation of the power of God. And so on their way out, what it says in the book of Exodus is really fascinating. He, he doesn't have them go by way of the land of the Philistines, which is the easy and most appropriate way. And he says, because I don't want my people to be so discouraged that they would turn back and go to Egypt. Go back to Egypt. He knows how weak their hearts are, how there still needs to be a certain training. And so he has Moses taken by another road. And when he goes, he ends up coming up to the Red Sea, and they set up camp there, and Pharaoh hears about it. And he's like, I can't believe this. Those guys, they left. You know what? I, I was duped and deceived. They just want to be lazy, and they don't want to work. I'm going to go bring them back into slavery. And so they go with 600 chariots, picked chariots, and all of his soldiers. And then you can imagine this moment of Israel, how they revolt against Moses. I can't believe you brought us out here just to die. Now Pharaoh's coming to kill us all. But then God ends up doing something remarkable. And Moses encourages them that the Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is be still, that this is the Lord's battle. So he stirs up a wall of sand in between Pharaoh and the Israelites, and Moses then turns towards the Red Sea with hand lifted, and God mysteriously parts the Red Sea. I mean, that stuff doesn't happen. And God does it. And when it parts, the, the people of Israel march through the Red Sea. Now it's clear that when they're marching out of Egypt, it talks about them being marching in battle array, equipped for battle. 
yet even though their hearts are still not ready for it. But they make it through, and then the the Pharaoh comes in right after them. The waters come crashing in, and God has a powerful victory that day, victory over evil. Now fast forward about a month or so. We see another battle where they encounter Amalek. This is where we get our first reading today. In those days, Amalek came and waged war against Israel. Now, Israel was not seeking this war. Amalek came and tried to, or, and sought a fight, picked a fight. Now, what does Moses do? He says to Joshua, commander of the armies, pick out certain men and tomorrow go out and engage Amalek in battle. But I will be standing on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Don't go out there until after I get into position. We see what happens. Joshua did as Moses told him. He engaged Amalek in battle. And after Moses had climbed to the top of the hill with Aaron and her, but it was after. And as long as Moses kept his hands raised, this is interesting. Israel had the better of the fight. But when he let his hands rest, what happened? Amalek had the better of the fight. The enemy was gaining ground. Moses' hands, however, grew tired, so they put a rock in a place for to sit on. And, and Aaron and Hur lifted up his hands in order to, they helped him in order that they, he might continue to intercede on behalf of Israel. I remember about four years ago, four or five years ago, I went to a youth rally, and there were about oh, maybe a thousand youth there. And I was there just, you know, it was a Eucharistic adoration, praise and worship. It was beautiful. And there just being able to praise the Lord together with all these youth. And then all of a sudden I got this call, this summons in my heart. Brady, you need to go up to the top of this auditorium and stretch out your hands over this place. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding me? (laughs) And so I was like, all right, I guess this is going to be kind of ridiculous, but I'll go. Anyway, so I get up to the top and I'm just praying and interceding just really begging the Lord that his mercy might come upon these youth, knowing how many of them struggle with different uh, attacks of the enemy and the lies of the culture and all that stuff, that, that the enemy would have no power here, that he would gain no ground, that Israel would have the better of the fight that day, and that, that God would reveal his mercy for them in their life. And when I was up there, you know, it's like, how long can my arms be held out? I mean, it was a long time. And I was remembered when I was a little kid. And my dad, I have four sisters and a brother. And, uh, and sometimes we would get in fights. God have mercy on us. But, uh, but my dad, he would make us stand face to face with arms outstretched like this and say, okay, you got to stand like that until you guys forgive each other. And you're just like, you've got to be kidding me. And, you, you know, when you're a kid, you're just like, I can't do this any longer. And it's been like 30 seconds. And, uh, and, then, um, and then it's like, fine, fine, I'll forgive you and all that. I do remember one time my dad, he must have been a little bit impatient that day. He says, go and get a couple of soup cans from your mother <laughs> and so, to hold them out. <laughs> but it is, it's this, this uh, experience of becoming weary as Moses in this uh, power of intercession uh, so that, that Joshua and the Israelites might have a decisive victory, but not by their hands as much as it's from the hand of God. Because there he is with the rod of the Lord in his hand. But why do we care about this? Like this skirmish from three millennia ago. Who cares? 
Well, in the second reading, we hear from St. Paul that all scripture, is, all scripture is inspired by God. So why did God have this written down for our benefit? A couple of verses after this, it says that the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation unto generation. That God is fighting a war against Amalek forever. Why? Because it's not so much against Amalek as it is a revelation of the truth of the Christian life. That we are born into battle. Now remember Pippin, how he said, I I don't want to be in a battle, but being on the edge of one I can't escape is even worse. This is the good news. There is no hope of getting out of this battle. (laughs) So it's already decided for us. So we can't just kind of like be like, well, maybe, maybe there's an opportunity that this battle won't happen. We're already in it. And I don't think it's that hard to see. Just seeing how the culture is going. And even if we're honest with ourselves and our battle against temptation and the different things that we struggle with in our own lives. But here's the problem. The enemy does not fight fair. Let's go to what Moses says about this battle way later on towards the end of his life. Now this is in Deuteronomy when Moses is giving his last will and testament to Israel right before they enter into the promised land. And he's recalling a lot of the events of the Exodus. And he says this, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. Remember what Amalek did. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off at your rear all who lagged behind you. And he did not fear God. Let me read that again. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off at your rear all who lagged behind you. And he did not fear God. Now, how, how was Amalek really working in battle? What was his strategy? He was finding the weak and the weary and picking them off. The stragglers left behind and getting them one by one. St. Peter tells us in his first letter to be sober and watchful because the enemy is lurking around like a uh, lurking around, uh, prowling around like a, a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. How does an enemy hunt? Or I mean, how does the, a lion hunt? He looks for the weak ones, the sickly ones, the easy kill. So too does the enemy. We know that this war is not against flesh and blood, but we are contending with principalities and powers, with the devil and his demons, with his minions. But we know that God is far greater, far greater, and his power is more awesome than the weakness and power of the enemy. I mean, he is nothing compared to God. And so it's with great courage then that we enter into this fight. Not that we look for it, but it will come as Amalek came and waged war against Israel. St. Ignatius has another way of saying it. In his first week of the uh, exercises, he has rules for discernment. How does the enemy work? How does the Lord work? And he says the enemy works like this. In Rule 14, he says that the enemy is like a commander of an army 
how he's coming to lay siege to a city and plunder it. But this city is fortified. There's a wall around it. So what does he do? He sets up camp outside, and he marches around the wall, saying, where are the weak spots? Where are the vulnerable places that I can exploit and take advantage of? What's the easiest way in so that I can enter and destroy this city? So too does the enemy. As this master people watcher, he looks at us and examines all of our virtues, cardinal, moral, theological, and says, what are the weak spots in their armor? What's the easiest way that I can get in and destroy their soul? Archbishop Aquila has asked us to preach on Proposition 106. Now, given these readings, let's take a look at that for a second. Proposition 106 is physician-assisted suicide. Now, we can see that, that this war is raging, and we're already in it. But let's see how the enemy works in this. He has no power over us except through seduction and through fear and intimidation. How there are many people who suffer deeply incredibly people who have terminal illness and it's extremely painful I've counseled some of them and how when the enemy comes he exploits this remember how he works like the Amalek who picks off the stragglers and waits until we're weak and weary and goes after the weakness you can't handle that kind of suffering that loss of control in your life, you need to meet this according to your own desires. Besides, you're going to be a burden to everybody. Your family's going to resent you for this. You're a burden on society. You can't handle that suffering. It's going to be too intense. God has abandoned you in this. There's no hope. Except for this. Just, you can end it. End it in a dignified way. Just take a couple of pills. No problem. Now when we're weak and weary, how hard it is to fight against those subtle lies. But we know that there is only one thing that it can keep us from the Lord. If we choose to refuse his mercy. Right before this first reading, there's a haunting question that Israel is struggling out in the desert and they ask this question, is the Lord among us or not? Has God abandoned me? Death with dignity. We come here to celebrate the mystery of our salvation. What God did. The cross. Is that death undignified? No. 
That's precisely the moment where God reveals his uttermost love for us. That he has not abandoned us. He will not abandon us. He cannot abandon us. He's entered into suffering and death. So that we may have confidence and hope in the surety of his victory. The war is his. The battle is his. And yes, it's important to uh, participate politically and not allow the enemy to gain ground by institutionalizing sin, by trying to enable and assist those to choose something so horrible, a violence and destruction of the soul. As Jesus tells us, don't, don't worry and don't be afraid about those who can kill the body, but be afraid about the one who doesn't just kill the body, but drags the soul into Gehenna. Be afraid of that one, he says. But how are we to win this battle? Moses' Moses' arms remained raised. When they were, Israel had the better of the fight. But when he rested, the enemy gained ground. How is this battle going to be won? Jesus tells us a parable about the necessity for them to pray always without becoming weary. This is the weapon. St. Pio tells us the weapon is the rosary. I don't know if you prayed the rosary lately, but maybe we should pick it up again. If we're faithful and steadfast in our prayer, we realize that our help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth and that this battle is his, this war is his, and he will be victorious. But then we might realize something profoundly mysterious, a call from us, or a call to us from God, that in this battle, we must be like Mary for those who are suffering? Are we willing to walk all the way to the cross with someone who is suffering that and remain there and stay with them and pray and encourage and suffer with them? That's our call. That's our task. Today, let us not desire to escape from this battle. Let us put our faith in God, knowing that the victory is sure.